1: Debt diversion, a deal to raise the ceiling, imminent, but it's temporary. Chinese chatter, Presidents Xi and Biden agree to talks and Putin's power play. Russia offers to ease the energy crisis in Europe. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. once again to today's first move, lots to discuss, including a D-Day delay. Congress set to keep a debt default at bay, plus U.S. jobs data on the way. Will Friday's report accelerate the Federal Reserve's taper day and Putin holding sway? Russia says Europe's energy shortages could be made Passe. But at what cost? We'll discuss. US stocks staged a mighty rebound on Wednesday as energy prices eased and the debt ceiling debate took a more positive turn. We are adding, as you can see, to those gains at pre-market following the brighter tone across Europe and Asia. The Hang Seng rallying over 3%, as you can see, too, in what feels like part tactical retreat, part can kick. Senate Republicans are offering a short-term debt limit extension deal until December to give Democrats more Time to work on a longer term deal. Let's hope Christmas in D.C. isn't cancelled or delayed yet again this year. Just wake me up when it's over, please. The Nobel Peace Prize actually is set to be announced tomorrow. How about a Nobel Cease Prize for whoever can broker a permanent end to these debt ceiling dramas? Yep, I said it. And uh, from hot air in Washington and perhaps a little bit in New York too, I acknowledge it, to cooler prices for oil. And natural gas, the latter falling from 10-year highs Wednesday after President Putin said Gazprom maybe can accelerate supplies. The United States also mentioning perhaps tapping emergency oil reserves too. You see, there are options. The energy shortage is far from licked. At least the debt ceiling can might be kicked. And that's where we begin today's drivers with John Harwood. John, talk us through how this might work.
2: Well, it is a kick of the can down the road, but it's a very welcome one for Mm. the American economy, the global economy, the country more generally. We were getting close to a crisis point where, of course, the uh, Democrats and Republicans were facing off. Uh, Mitch McConnell was trying to exact a large political price from Democrats for raising the debt ceiling, even though he knew that failing to do so would tank the economy. Um, And in the end, because he worried that Democrats might uh, set aside the filibuster in order to deal with this. Uh, that seemed like a bigger threat to him, so he backed off. Uh, it appears that it hasn't been, uh, the deal hasn't been accepted yet. They're still uh, haggling over the wording of it, but it looks as if the debt limit will be raised uh, sufficiently to get us into December. Then they'll have to work a longer term uh, resolution of the issue. There's still a question about. about what the mechanism for that will be. Does it have to be, as Mitch McConnell is offering, in the reconciliation process, that special budget procedure that Democrats are using? Democrats are saying, no, we're going to do it independently of that. And it does appear that, given the fact that McConnell backed off at the last minute uh, at this moment, that he's likely to do the same thing at the end and they will get a longer-term resolution. Um, It's uh, the kind of thing that in the past had been The subject of a harmless fight between the two parties. But increasingly in recent years, Republicans have escalated the stakes of these uh, encounters in 2011. The House Republicans refused to raise the debt limit. And we actually had a downgrade, as you recall, Julia, of uh, U.S. debt for the first time in history. Uh, We've avoided that this time.
1: Yeah, and two of the rating agencies actually in the last few days coming out and saying, look, we do think this crisis will be averted. I want to eye roll when this comes around every year. But to your point, John, and I think it's a great one, actually, the stakes are coming and becoming higher and higher. And actually, the economic crisis that could be created by this should be paramount. But we talk about the political crisis, too. And actually, I looked at the stats in the latest Quinnipiac poll. And speaking of political crisis for the Democrats here, avoiding A further issue here. um, Pivotal. His approval ratings are slumping.
2: Uh, Joe Biden's taken on water the last couple of months. The Quinnipiac poll that showed him at 38 percent. That's an outlier in the CNN average of polls. He's a little bit higher at 45. uh, But he had been consistently above 50 percent, as you know, Julia, all year. uh, Very steady. Uh, until you had two things uh, occur at the same time. One is the Delta variant uh, uh, reflected a resurgence of the pandemic. And one of the reasons that people had judged Joe Biden favorably since he took office was the progress he had made with vaccinations and with tamping down the pandemic. That seemed to go into reverse. That took the most significant toll on his popularity. And then you had the Afghanistan withdrawal, Uh, whether you agree with it or not. The images were very bad and troubling to the American people. And that also was a negative on his approval rating. Uh, The uh, biggest thing that the Biden administration can do now, they're concerned about it, of course, is one, get control of the pandemic. And you see a more aggressive approach by the president to vaccine requirements. He's going to be speaking about that today in Illinois. Uh, And we are seeing cases and hospitalizations and deaths now going down. And the second thing is to enact this economic agenda. That's what will make a difference, he believes, substantively for the American economy now and in the future. But also, the American people will see him as succeeding on a top priority that's important to them. That may uh, begin the uh, uptick back up uh, in his approval ratings. At least that's what the Biden administration hopes.
1: Yeah, Delta, the economy and his economic agenda, Afghanistan and the border wall.
2: Immigration, I mean, it's a perfect storm. John, we'll
1: see. Thank you so much for your wisdom, as always. Also in Washington, the White House says President Biden and his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping have agreed to meet virtually before the end of the year. This comes as Beijing escalates its military pressure on Taiwan by sending a record number of warplanes into Taiwan's air defense zone. Selina Wang joins us with the details. Uh, Selina, this is the highest level meeting actually since the Alaska summit back in uh, March when uh, I think everyone ended up publicly berating and lecturing everyone else. Um, So it seems the tone here was warmer.
3: Exactly, Julia. I and mean, we can certainly say that U.S.-China tensions are still running high, but we, we are seeing here as a partial thawing of tensions, and at least we're seeing both sides willing to hear each other out. And this decision on principle to agree to have Biden and Xi meet virtually before the end of the year was a result of this extended six-hour meeting between U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and China's top diplomat Yang Jiezi. And as you say, both sides had a positive review of this. They said it was candid, wide ranging and direct. The tone was professional and respectful. A far cry from that March meeting we had discussed in Alaska when they were trading barbs in front of TV cameras. There were accusations of condescension and grandstanding. But now this talk was private. They were able to have a more honest back and forth discussion we hear on areas of both cooperation and disagreement, which is a long list that includes Hong Kong, the South China Sea, Xinjiang, China's human rights record, as well as, of course, Taiwan. But what's important about these lines of communication being open is that it avoids any accidental conflict. And as the U.S. side says, quote, responsibly manage competition. And this meeting comes, of course, as the U.S. has been sending sharp warnings to Beijing over a record number of warplanes sent through Taiwan's air identification defense zone. Take a listen to what U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken had to say.
2: The activity is destabilizing, it risks miscalculation, uh, and it has the potential to undermine regional peace and stability. So uh, we strongly urge uh, Beijing to cease its military, diplomatic, and economic uh, pressure and coercion directed at Taiwan.
3: China's military activity around Taiwan is not a sign of an imminent threat of war, according to analysts, but it is Beijing flexing its military muscle and power to not just Taiwan, but to the world. It is showing Taiwan's friends that it is not going to back down in the face of their support. That display was also a show of patriotic strength. The warplanes coincided with China's National Day that was celebrated on October 1st. And so, Julia, the big question here is now that we have this line of communication open, this somewhat thawing of tensions, how is that discussion going to lead to actual action when you have so many
1: increasing areas of
3: disagreement?
1: You're so right. But at least at this stage, talk is better than nothing. And we hope for action. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that. I've got this. Natural gas prices falling after President Vladimir Putin said Russia could pump more. And the deputy prime minister says approving the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is key to easing Europe's energy crisis. Anna Stewart is following the story. But who does have this, quite frankly? I mean, Putin has so much leverage. OPEC plus, of course, in terms (laughs) of oil prices. The Nord Stream 2 pipeline pipeline—he's waiting for the Germans to approve. Um, Never one to miss a moment is Vladimir Putin. And he certainly didn't miss this one.
4: Exactly. I mean, Russia holds all the cars, particularly when we look at Europe and energy. I mean, Europe imports 90 percent of its gas. Nearly three quarters of that comes from Russia. Russia is the biggest supplier of its oil. So, yeah, Russia holds the cars here. And Russia has repeatedly denied that it's been withholding gas from the European markets in order to keep those prices high, to support this pipeline. But it is interesting that Putin suddenly has said that they could supply more gas to Europe. Not that they would, but they could. And the deputy prime minister within the same meeting makes the argument that if Nord Stream 2 was uh, certified very quickly, well, that would stabilise gas prices. Very, very interesting, particularly as President Putin used this opportunity to also really blame uh, Europe for not having longer term contracts with, uh, in terms of gas with Russia. This is something they've reduced in recent years and saying that they're relying too much on the spot market. And given how reliant the EU is on Russia, I think perhaps he's right.
1: Yes, a very interesting <laughs> point. You know, it's not often I have to say that I agree with Vladimir Putin, but With regards to some of the comments that he's made in recent weeks, I have to say I agree with him. And I want to get your conversation, your viewpoint on this, too. Um, And it ties to a conversation I had with the Dow CEO yesterday. I mean, Vladimir Putin said some people are speculating on climate change issues. Some people are underestimating some things. Some are starting to cut back investments in the extractive industries. There needs to be a smooth transition. And he does have a point. We can't go from... A to C in terms of greater sustainability without having a path. And policymakers here are so important in smoothing that transition. Anna, what do you make of what he said here?
4: Listen, I don't think I'm going to give you a different viewpoint, to be honest. I think you, me and President Putin are all on the same page here. We are in a transition to renewable energy. Everyone wants to see that. But the fact of the matter is that the world's uh, demand in terms of energy cannot be met at this stage by 100 percent renewables. And yet the pressure from policymakers and also I think crucially from shareholders is to move away from hydrocarbons, And that means lots of energies have simply cut back on their investment there. They've cut back on infrastructure around the world, particularly in terms of government infrastructure, gas storage facilities and so on. And therefore, when you have these multiple shocks uh, to supply and demand, when we look at the fact that, you know, there was a very long winter, it depleted uh, reserves of gas around Europe. And then you had weak, weak weather in terms of solar and wind uh, over the summer and you've got demand roaring back into action post-lockdowns, there simply isn't enough energy security here, really, within this transition. And the EU is uh, meeting next week. We're going to hear a lot more about the Commission's strategy, longer-term strategy in terms of energy. But I think we're going to hear more and more about investment in renewables, not, of course, looking at hydrocarbons. And a really interesting nugget of information I got from an analyst at Eurasia is that very quietly on the side, apparently Germany and France are firing back up their coal plants, plants that had been moth- mothballed. And I, I really think that says it all. And this winter, we'll see where the consumers who feel the pinch from these gas prices start to question the strategy from governments in their push for renew- renewables. Yes. I mean, when
1: Vladimir is putting it, Blutin is saying it, we know there's a, plenty of vested interest there because the transition for ve- renewables is um, clearly relatively bad for Russia. However, he has a point, And I think you made it he well, Anna Stewart. <laughs> he does. We don't disagree. Anna Stewart, thank you. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that making headlines around the world. The World Health, Health Organization is recommending the widespread use of the world's first malaria vaccine for children in sub-Saharan Africa and other regions. It's being called a historic move. The World Health Organization says the vaccine was developed in Africa by African scientists. CNN's David McKenzie joins us now from Johannesburg. David, I, I can't say how pivotal this would be and is, quite frankly. I mean, this is the the worst pandemic the world has ever faced. Talk us through what more we know on this and how important it is.
5: Well, certainly it's been a disease, a parasitic disease that has affected people across the world for centuries, particularly here in sub-Saharan Africa. And still on this continent, young children, those under five, more than a quarter million Uh, die from malaria, this parasitic disease, every single year despite the many, many decades of attempts to try and end the scourge. But this parasite that's carried by the Anopheles female uh, mosquito has really just... uh, worked around all of these attempts. Now there is this uh, vaccine that's been approved for wide use. It's been tested in pilot programs in Ghana, Kenya and Malawi to many hundreds of thousands of children and shown to be safe and effective. Now, how effective it is? Well, that's slightly complicated. Around 30 percent efficacy, uh, Julia, in terms of stopping severe disease in young children, but when that is combined uh, on a seasonal basis with prophylactics and insecticide-treated bed nets, that moves up to around 70%. So because it's safe, or because it saves lives, possibly tens of thousands of lives a year, according to the WHO, uh, this long-awaited vaccine has been approved and will be rolled out further. Julia?
1: And David, very quickly, because we've all talked about the logistical issues of mRNA-based vaccines and the deep cold temperatures that they have to be transported and stored in, how easy is it going to be to transport this, particularly to rural areas?
5: Well, I think one of the issues here is that these vaccines have to be given out three in over a space of a few months with young children Mm -hmm. and then a bit later after 18 months. But What they found in these large pilot programs is because many of these countries, though uh, these are rural poor areas, uh, because they have routine immunizations for diphtheria, tuberculosis, polio, they can then uh, put in this other dose of uh, the malaria vaccine and everyone is used to this and there are systems in place for this. So I don't think that's the major issue. Again, an issue will be cost. Uh, GlaxoSmithKline, the uh, the major producer of this, has said they are willing to do this at under 5% over cost. Uh, They need funding for that. And the next step will be for Gavi and others, the Vaccine Alliance, to see whether they are willing also uh, to put money to this initiative uh, because it can and should have a very massive impact And just on a personal level, you know, for any of us who have traveled through these regions and seen the impact on families and children of malaria, the listlessness, the sickness, the repeated infection and often the death. uh, This is really good news. This particular vaccine was first developed in the 80s. It's taken that long to get to this point.
1: But we're here now. Julia. Here we are. David McKenzie in Johannesburg. Thank you so much for that. All right, coming up here on First Move, inflation, the Federal Reserve and supply chains will tackle all the issues and the risks with Mohamed el Arian in just a few moments' time. And later in the show, fighting plastic pollution and making cleaning products kinder, one company shows us how both can be done at the same cost. Stay with us. It's all coming up. Welcome back to First Move. Wall Street may have a feeling that a stale on the debt ceiling is nearing. All the major averages are set to rally for a second day as Republicans offer a short-term deal to raise the borrowing limit until December. Far from an ideal solution, of course, but at least it lessens the odds of a last-minute political miscalculation with very painful consequences perhaps for markets and, most importantly, the U.S. economy and beyond. The Dow and the S&P are now higher for the week with a lot riding. On Friday's all-important U.S. jobs report, we're expecting around half a million jobs to have been created net, a substantial jump from the week reader in August. A good report could give the Federal Reserve the last piece of evidence it needs to begin cutting stimulus next month. Markets fear the Fed is already behind the inflationary curve as energy prices soar to multi-year highs. Fed officials still believe higher prices won't last once supply issues and port bottlenecks subside. But major retailers like Walmart don't have the luxury of waiting. They've begun chartering their own ships that can bypass congested terminals. Retailers hoping to avoid product shortages and empty shelves ahead of the holiday season. Mohamed al an advisor to both Allianz and Gramercy Funds Management, joins us now. Mohamed, always great to have you on the show I have to say there's growing disquiet, I think, that perhaps uh, that inflation and higher prices not looking quite as temporary as policymakers keep telling us. How concerned are you?
6: I am concerned and I've been concerned for a while. Yeah. Um, this is not to say there aren't transitory factors, meaning they are temporary and quickly reversible, but there also are longer term issues that are going to last into next year. And as you just pointed out, Julia, people are already changing behaviours. The minute you talk about behavioural changes, it tells you that these are not transitory inflation trends. And the next one, unfortunately, is going to be more companies feeling confident that they can pass on the higher cost into higher prices.
1: Yeah, changed behaviour starts to look far more sticky than uh, temporary. Is it it too early to be discussing I'll say the word stagflation, we're talking a lower growth environment with higher prices.
6: It's not too early to discuss it as what they call a tail risk, Mm. Um, relatively low probability, high impact. Is it too early to talk about it as a baseline, as something that has a more than 60 or 70 percent probability of happening? Yes. There is no reason why we should trip into a stagflation. There are stagflationary winds. But if our policymakers respond quickly enough, they will die down.
1: You say the deciding factor is going to be policy, policy decisions, global economic policy decisions, actually, in the coming weeks. Is that fiscal, monetary or both? Be specific about the the real risks here.
6: Happy to be specific. We need three policy responses. Mm. Number one, at the Fed. They need to ease their foot of the pedal to the metal monetary policy approach. They are putting in way too much liquidity. Um, It's causing a liquidity overhang. It also is causing asset prices to disconnect. Look at housing as a perfect example. Do we really need the Fed to buy 40 million, 40 billion? worth of mortgages every month when a lot of Americans are being priced out of the housing market? The answer is no, but they keep on doing it. So number one is the Fed easing its foot, not slamming the brakes, easing its foot off the accelerator. Number two, pro-growth initiatives. I think what the Biden administration is proposing in terms of physical and human infrastructure is really important. And number three, something that's hardly ever discussed, more prudential supervision of the non-banks to make sure that we don't get a market accident. If you do all three, you have an orderly path that avoids both persistent inflation and the stag side of stagflation.
1: I mean, they're staggered in terms of when they take place. And we've got all sorts of decisions, to your point, about spending, be it significant spending or whopping size spending. We've obviously got the Federal Reserve to make a decision. How does the market react? Will the market react positively to a Federal Reserve that turns around and says, look, okay, the time is nigh. In fact, the time perhaps has been nigh for a while and and now we take action. How soon do they respond? Because I think that has to be the first thing.
6: So I don't think we're looking at the taper tantrum of 2013 or even the sort of instability we saw in 2018. And that is because even when they taper, they will be continuing to inject liquidity into the system. Most people expect, for example, that the balance sheet of the Fed is gonna keep on going up for a while and may well exceed nine trillion. So they're still putting in liquidity, they're just putting in less of it. So there will be some uncertainty in the marketplace, but I do not think it will be dramatic. But the longer they wait, the higher the probability that they not just have to ease off the accelerator, but slam on the brakes. And that's why I've been calling for them to taper for the last six months.
1: I mean, one of the uncertainties, and I do feel a little bit for Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve here, is the political dysfunction that we've been watching in D.C. And while most of us, I think, will take a step back and say we do this every single year and we have this dramatic debate about the debt ceiling, a ceiling of uh, and chaos of the Congress's own creation, quite frankly, um, it has been one of the tariffs in addition to higher energy prices, in addition to supply chain issues. So you can perhaps understand that they sort of fear creating a, a greater problem than, than people are already dealing with, than the real economy is already dealing with for all the challenges.
6: So, so that is the view. But Julia, if I may, I completely disagree with that
5: view. <laughs> yes, it's wrong. Please.
6: It's wrong, first of all, <laughs> because they are not benefiting the economy. They are benefiting asset holders and they are creating asset inflation which is actually harming um, bits of the economy and creating the, a higher risk of financial stability. That's number one. Number two, they can't do anything about s- supply constraints. So continuing to pump in liquidity is not going to help the ships move across the oceans. It's not going to re-establish um, all sorts of supply chains. I think we've gotten to the point where most economists agree there are very few economic benefits of this pedal-to-the-metal approach and the costs and risks are mounting every single day.
1: Does the Fed get that, Mohammed? Is Jay Powell listening?
6: Um, they are afraid of a repeat of 2013 or, tw- or 2018. You know, the image I have in my mind, and it's a good thing that we call it a tantrum, is that you are continuously feeding sweets candy to the marketplace. And of course, you've gotten the marketplace conditioned to expect lots and lots of sweets on a regular basis. So of course, if you're going to take some away, there's going to be some short term reaction, and they're afraid of that short term reaction, they're afraid of the tantrum. But every parent knows that the answer to a potential tantrum by your kid is not giving them more sweets. That's not the right approach. You just make things worse for later on.
1: And it's better than uh, rotten teeth and your teeth all falling out as well, if you, um, if you keep that doing is, it, which that, I think.
6: That, yeah, oh, I should add that. That's one. I will add that from now on. Really. I will
1: give that to you. Um, for investors, Mohammed, how should they invest? based on the risks, the, the likelihood of the Federal Reserve reacting. And to your point, and I think it's a great one, we're beyond the point now where there's been so much liquidity sloshing around that the risks are deeply mismatched in certain asset classes as well, in too many asset classes.
6: Yeah, it's, I always had the image of a surfer. You're on a wave, you're enjoying the liquidity wave, um, but just keep an eye on the shore because we're getting closer to it. So from a tactical perspective, it makes sense to continue to buy the dips, but I want to stress, that's a tactical view. Um, you've got to be incredibly agile because we have a lot of uncertainties ahead of us, and that's not yet priced in by a marketplace that has been conditioned simply to follow the Fed. So, so tactically, liquidity is going to continue to be important, more long-term, just make sure that... You get off that wave before it breaks.
1: Yeah, kneel on that surfboard. Don't stand on it or strap yourself. That's in. right. <laughs> yeah, Mohammed, great to chat to you as always. Thank you so much, Mohammed Aleri, and their advisor to Allianz and Gramercy Funds Management. We'll speak soon. Thank you. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are gaining ground at the open. The second day of gains, in fact, on Wall Street on hopes for a short-term, at least, debt ceiling increase until December. Markets had been relatively concerned with short-term yield spiking on fears that the U.S. could default on its debt for the very first time. In the meantime, another uncertainty, the energy markets. Can the Russian bear wrestle with the energy bulls? Call it a Gazprom gusher. Crude and natural gas prices are lower as Moscow pledges to do more to help boost gas supply. But U.S. oil still up 56 percent this year. Natural gas prices up 123 percent. Facebook, meanwhile, moving higher for a third straight session and gaining back a lot of the 5% losses it suffered on Monday. That said, lots of questions over how increased regulatory scrutiny might pressure future growth. Reports say the company is delaying the rollout of some new products as it battles whistleblower allegations that its business model weakens democracy and harms users. Meanwhile, Facebook is facing more potential problems as whistleblower Francis Haugen is expected to meet with a congressional panel investigating the January 6 riot at the U.S. Capitol As soon as today. The former Facebook employee could provide insight into how the social media giant was possibly used to facilitate violence. It also comes after she talked about how Facebook's Instagram affects children's minds, as Claire Sebastian reports.
3: It's just like cigarettes. Teenagers don't have good self-regulation.
7: Whistleblower Frances Haugen says she saw how Instagram's algorithm can lead the teenage brain down a negative spiral.
3: They say explicitly, I feel bad when I use Instagram, and yet I can't
8: stop.
7: Experts say they've been seeing this for years.
8: You could hit something really exciting, or you could connect with someone in a really positive way that feels great. Um, these things don't happen often, but they could happen at any moment. And and this is not unlike a gambler who's playing a slot machine and just plays it over and over because you never know when that next pull is going to hit a jackpot.
7: Studies have shown the part of the brain that controls decision-making and judgment is still developing in teenagers. I want to understand the science of teens' emotional life. Doctor and filmmaker Delaney Rustin says that can make it harder for them to stop doing something, even if it's upsetting.
4: They will have micro-emotions that are positive, like get attention, and micro-emotions that are negative. Ooh, I feel jealous of that person the real concern that we have as a society is the teen brain is primed to more likely get absorbed by that negative feeling
7: it's not just the type of content that can affect the teenage brain it's the amount of time spent just sitting and scrolling
8: remember that um adolescence is a time when the brain is not finished developing right and it's not actually growing it's actually shrinking but it's becoming more efficient.
7: Dr. Paul Weigel says if social media starts to displace other activities, that could leave a permanent mark.
8: If a young person isn't engaging in certain activities sufficiently, whether they be, for example, social activities or developing musical talent or or, uh, or, or reading, these parts of the brain are, are uh, tend to wither and are destroyed so that they can never really be regained.
3: They say, just take your kid's phone away. And the reality is those issues are a lot more complicated than that.
7: Quitting social media in a digital world is not always realistic. Experts say there's a middle ground.
8: I think that social media companies could very realistically put safeguards in place um, that encourage people to take breaks from social media.
4: Teens tell me over and over that they feel better when they have significant bouts of time off social media.
7: Sebastian, CNN, New York.
1: Coming up after the break, time to clean up our act, making household cleaners without the chemicals and the landfill. Well, there's a firm for that. It's called Clean Cult and investors are finding it hard to resist. They join us next. Welcome back to First Move and to an awful scene. The durability of plastic waste is depressingly obvious. About 370 million tonnes of plastic was churned out of factories last year, according to Statistica. And one estimate suggests only 9% of plastic bottles are actually recycled. Well, one company is trying to reverse that trend with a range of cleaning products in recyclable, refillable containers. Clean Cult says its ingredients are kinder to humans and their shipping model is more sustainable, too. Here to discuss, Ryan Lutberger. He's CEO of Clean Cult and he joins us now. Ryan, welcome to the show. Okay, explain. good Good to have you here. Explain Clean Cult and what makes you unique.
9: Yeah. yeah. So I started Clean Cult because I looked at the back of my bottle of laundry detergent 2015, 2016, didn't see any ingredients listed, right? And I'm from Boulder, Colorado, always been really natural. Um, I did all this research, right? And there's very limited regulation in the U.S. for what goes into our cleaning products. Then I products, the, the green ones you see in the market, all covered in plastic, right? And more and more plastic packaging on store shelves. So finally said, it, it, there has to be a better way. And that's what where Clean Call came. So we are the only company in the world that can actually put soap in a milk carton. And we use natural ingredients you can actually understand and pronounce, formulas that are hyper effective in a system that cuts out over 95% of plastic waste.
1: Okay. So there's so much in there that I want to deep dive into. But how difficult, just first of all, is it to put cleaning products in the equivalent of a milk carton. I have an image of a dishwasher with the wrong powder in there and the thing foaming out.
9: Yeah, yeah, so it sounds easy. (laughs) It's really not. We uh, we started in We could go to any water, milk, right, orange juice manufacturer in the world, Um, and you can't because once you run a non-food product on a food machine, that machine cannot be used again in food, right? It's totally cross-contaminated. So we literally had to build our own machines from scratch. So we we jokingly had our our team call it the dark years, but 2016, 2017, 2018, we leaked almost two million pounds of soap on our floor because we couldn't get it right. So our, our piston filled foam, the soap, our cartons exploded, um, the side seals leaked. And then when you think of it being on a shelf for a year or two, right, CVS, for example, you have to just get it really perfect. So we, uh, it took us quite, quite a while to uh, get a. The
1: dark years, but the floors <laughs> were incredibly clean. That, that's the consolation. Um, yeah. Okay, so when we're talking perfect. about sort of clean products, and and we're talking about the cleaning products. I think the first thing, and we can talk about cost afterwards, but it's, does it smell clean? Does it do the job right? Because I think everybody would like to be more environmentally friendly, but at the same time, it's got to smell clean, it's got to feel clean. How have you achieved that?
9: Yeah, so when we started this, we actually originally wanted to start with the formulations, right? So truly clean formulations. Then we went to packaging, right? And then we actually went to use for the consumer because our whole thesis is we can't, ask people to change behavior, right? To introduce a way that you could clean with hand soap, dish soap, all purpose cleaner laundry detergent and not sacrifice anything, right? So instead of a plastic bottle, you just refill it in our forever uh, glass bottles that are really beautiful. Formulas are equally as effective as the leading conventionals and their price parity, right? So we've really tried to create a way, we call it the everyday environmentalist, right? How do we change behavior but without actually changing ourselves is really our goal here.
1: The key in there for me was price parity, because I think we all, again, care about sustainability, whether it's the products that we're using, whether it's the how they're shipped and the sustainability of that, which I know you tackle as well. But perhaps sustainability becomes a luxury if it costs more. Are you saying that all of the things that you're doing does not make it more expensive than just something where you look at the back of the product and you can't tell what's in it?
9: So I think when we started, absolutely, it was incredibly expensive, right? It's uh, really challenging to move to a zero waste model, right? And I think a lot of retailers are starting to see that. Consumers are starting to see it, but we're getting really close. So what's so great about our model is instead of storing a empty plastic bottle, right? So you imagine a bottle of laundry detergent. We actually can store 26 times the amount of cartons, right? Because they store flat. So it ends up actually saving yeah. us a lot of cost in the warehouse and the manufacturing floor. So with those costs passed through, even with a ingredient costs, we get close to parity. So really, our goal is to be at parity with the market next to Mrs. Meyers, a method, a seven generation and offer a better packaging solution in, in the very same same positioning.
1: And a great deal of sustainability along with it. Okay. Talk to me about where you're available, because I know you can buy these products on Amazon. You obviously have your own website. You also mentioned a couple of retail stores already. How does that break down? Where is the bulk of your, your selling at this moment, at least taking place?
9: Yes, we started online, like I think most direct-to-consumer businesses do, right? And really worked on the product, understood, got out in the market. Um, But retail really is our our bread and butter. So we have a massive going on right now with retailers going zero waste right with really aggressive commitments and it's it's inspiring it's exciting There's just the amount of movement that's happening in the cleaning space right now is really really unprecedented um, So that's really where we'll live. So we're in about 3500 retail stores today including CVS Bed Bath & Beyond Meyer. We've actually moved into Canada and we're in three major Canadian retailers um, And you can see us essentially nationwide. So our goal is to help really mass market go green and go zero waste, again, in a way that just works really well on a store shelves. So by the end of this year, we're gonna be in about 5,500 doors and next year, almost 10,000. So we're really trying to, to help people uh, make this change with that.
1: Yeah, the focus okay. of, um some of these retailers as well. And to your point about having greater degrees of sustainability in the products that they have on their shelves is going to be, um, I think, a challenge. And you can talk about that. But I guess at the start of your business, actually direct-to-consumer and online was was vital for your business. And that, in light of the conversations we've been having on this show in the last few days in particular, brings probably social media advertising for small and medium-sized businesses to mind. Is that what you were doing? And I guess... Let's be clear. Facebook. How important has Facebook been for advertising for your business?
9: Yeah, Facebook is everything. It was a drug. It is the only thing, right? So I think a lot of early brands talk about marketing a whole list. And you have to get the brand right, the design right, obviously the value prop right. But really, the whole function of distribution is through Facebook. Right, so 90% of our 2019 sales were driven by Facebook. 80% of our 2020 sales were driven by Facebook and our model works better for retail, right? And that's really where we live. Uh, But at the same time, we're moving and transitioning because it's getting really expensive, right? We're seeing all these challenges and if our costs in the platform go up over 50%, that's our economics, right? That's our model. So it was a real challenge seeing all the shifting landscape online. And I think a lot of brands right now are struggling to figure out where they fit and really how they can, they can grow in the market.
1: Yeah, this is fascinating. I mean, it's a completely separate conversation. But the idea that it's big advertisers that, that make Facebook so potent is really not true. As you said, basically, your business wouldn't exist based on the proportion of sales that you were generating in previous years from from advertising on Facebook. Um, That's a fascinating point. Let's talk about profitability, because I did actually come across you, not by seeing you on Facebook or in a supermarket, but actually talking to one of your investors that said, you know, people do care. Investors do care about a path to profitability. Are you profitable today? And if not, tell me about the path to profitability, because this is important too. at some point you want to make money.
9: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) That's my goal. (laughs) In addition to really helping the the (laughs) store. I think for us, it really is comes down to two parts, right? We had five years of really intense research and development, right? So we had to build our own machines. We had to build our own packaging. We have over 14 patent pendings in the market, right? And really trying to be first in a system that uh, really reduces waste, right? So for the first three years, profitability was not a focus, right? But I think that's really starting to shift. And as we've seen less and less venture dollars frankly get put to consumer brands because the exit landscape for consumer isn't 20 billion mostly right usually it's much more in the 300 500 800 million dollar range so because of that we have to be profitable right so that's the other reason we're moving into retail retail is a very healthy Business for us. You're shipping pallets, you're shipping in large quantities, you're working with customers that are really used to scale, where direct consumer is expensive, right? Online, you have to ship heavy, low grade products, you have to talk to every individual customer. But for us, it's really both, right? So we're going to balance our direct consumer growth so we can really get personalized feedback um, and then retail for scale and really balancing that. So for us, we think we're going to be profitable by the end of basically 2024, but continuing that focus on making our products the best we can be and, and really not sacrifice.
1: Facing there. We shall see. Come back and speak to us soon. And um, I do like the colours behind you. It's very soothing. The packaging, um, the packaging yeah. definitely works for me. Pretty, Ryan. Yeah. Great to, to
9: be cleaning you. Thanks <laughs> yeah, so, again.
1: Thank you, Ryan Luke there, the CEO of Clean Cults, and I apologise to our viewers for the slight interference. There, we did manage the conversation nonetheless. You're watching first for More to come. Welcome back to First Move. Expo 2020 in Dubai is highlighting the progress of humankind through its mobility pavilion. The project looks at how exploration has driven social development and scientific advances across the ages, as CNN's Eleni Jokos explains.
10: with big aspirations by wanting to create an unrivalled visitor experience. In 2017, the Expo 2020 team travelled 14,000 kilometres to New Zealand.
11: The scale of the mobility pavilion for us was fairly significant, really not since the uh, seven and a half year journey on the Lord of the Rings where we looked after five different departments Have we tackled something of of such similar scale, but in half the length of time.
10: For months, Richard Taylor and his team set about designing a monumental tribute to the epic journey of human mobility.
11: We created three eight times larger than life-size giants. If they were to stand up, they'd be nearly 16 metres tall. The three characters are Al-Bakri, who is a great geographer and historian. We also did Batuta, who is the great scholar and explorer. And we did Ibn Majid, who is a navigator and cartographer.
10: Creating these hyper-realistic replicas was no easy
11: task. Just in their clothing alone, there's one and a half kilometres of fabric in each piece of clothing. Dressing them with forklifts and cranes, 20,000 individual holes drilled into the face to insert the beards. The eyes are 3D printed.
10: Not to be done with just creating giants, the team set out to showcase the history of mobility down through the centuries through a type of art called bas-relief.
11: Our bas-relief is 53 metres long. It's got over... 200 human figures, 100 animals, over 100 vehicles. That tells the story of mobility from people emerging out of the beginnings of the world and then finding mobility by forming tribes, inventing footwear, and then, of course, on to the mobility of vehicles and ships and aeroplanes.
10: Now in their final home at Expo 2020, the displays are set to wow visitors by paying tribute to how mobility has been the driving force behind mankind's development. Eleni Jarkos, CNN, Expo 2020, Dubai.
1: And finally, on First Move, Andrew Lloyd Webber, the man who created the legendary musical Cats, has bought a dog. Why? Why? Well, because the movie version of Cats was so bad. And it was, I can't disagree. In an interview with Variety magazine, he said it was, quote, off the scale, all wrong. He said the movie left him emotionally damaged, quote, so his pet pooch is officially classed as a therapy animal. No doctor's note required. Meow. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at J Chesley CNN. And in the meantime, stay safe, connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. We'll see you tomorrow.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level.